gain traction whilst there is a declared policy objective of having a strong dollar from the US side. And as for the, the Chinese yuan, yes, there has been a, a depreciation trend against the dollar, but if you put it in the context of compare it to other currencies, it's been relatively resilient year to date. So I would be looking elsewhere for signs of, of, of rising volatility from an FX perspective. Well, thank you very much for that great conversation. That's Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manu Life Investment Management here in Hong Kong. You also heard Patrick Bennett, Macro Strategist at CIBC World Markets and our International Economics Correspondent, Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Asian Pacific markets are looking very strong at the open this morning. The SX200 in Australia is up one and a third percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has risen 0.6%. Uh, the Cosby up about 0.9% and futures markets pointing to a rise of just over 500 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talk. Coming up after the news, back chat with Jim Gould and Danny Gittings. The weather forecast, sunny periods and a few showers. Maximum temperature is going to be around 32 degrees and then a few showers and the temperatures will fall slightly in the next couple of days. Temperature right now is 29 degrees, 82% relative humidity. Times 8.31, here's Andrew Shrosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. An astronomer says Hong Kong has some very smart students who might be good candidates for astronauts, but they'll also need to meet vigorous physical and psychological requirements. Applications open tomorrow for Hong Kongers to apply to China's space program for the first time ever. Sun Kwok is the director of the University of Hong Kong's Laboratory for Space Research, which he says was created purely to take advantage of China's space program. He told RTHK he hoped his laboratory could put forward candidates for the recruitment exercise. But I think there are some unique aspects of candidates from Hong Kong. For example, in Hong Kong U, we have very extensive international collaborations and connections. So Hong Kong students may have a bit of international perspective. They also are more trained into having an open mind in problem solving and not being restricted by standard procedures and so on. So there are some differences as well. The United States has announced another $600 million in military aid for Ukraine as the country consolidates its gains against Russia. The latest hardware includes four more of the advanced HIMARS multiple rocket systems. The U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia, Laura Cooper, said military aid from the U.S. and its allies was helping Ukrainian successes on the battlefield. This package will provide the Ukrainian Armed Forces with additional capabilities and munitions that it needs to maintain momentum in the east and in the south, including additional artillery and precision fires. Ukraine has demonstrated the ability to use these capabilities to degrade Russian logistics and command and control, creating opportunities for Ukraine to maneuver and to advance. This has created a change in battlefield dynamics. The family of a teenage protester who died last month after joining protests in Tehran says Iranian security forces stole her daughter's body and buried her some distance away. 16-year-old Nika Shakarami's aunt told the BBC that in her last message, Nika said she was being chased by police. She left the house on 20th of September and she was missing for 10 days. After 10 days of search in every single prison, 
the authorities showed us a picture of her body in the streets, claiming that she died falling from a height. The way that picture was taken seemed like that photo was staged. Officials in northern India say 21 trainee mountaineers are missing after getting caught in an avalanche in the Himalayas. They were part of a group of climbers from a well-known state-run mountaineering school in Uttarakhand. A power blackout has hit large parts of Bangladesh following following a failure in the national grid. The authorities said more than 80% of the country has been affected by the sudden outage. More than 100 million people were, were reported to be without electricity. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. I'm Paddy Gittings and with me this morning is Jim Gould. Good morning. Good morning. In our main topic today, we're going to be looking at the first ever opportunity for Hong Kong people to become astronauts as China widens the selection process for its fourth batch of astronauts to include applicants from Hong Kong and Macau. Only two specialist scientific posts known as payload experts will be open to Hong Kong applicants at this stage and they must have both a doctoral degree and at least three years of work experience in the relevant scientific field. So the competition is expected to be fierce, with possibly thousands of candidates eligible to compete for the two payload posts. With some analysts optimistic this is only the start of opportunities for Hong Kongers to become more involved in the mainland space program. After 9.15, we're going to be looking at a plan to reduce the use of plastic containers by introducing reusable containers for some food deliveries. So what do you think? Leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call. The number there, 233-88266. That's 233-88266. Our guest in the main segment of the program this morning, we have with us uh, Professor Hong Yu Yu, who's Associate Professor at the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. We have Professor Quentin, Quentin Parker, who's Vice Chairman of Orion Astronomer Space Academy and Director of the University. Uh, um, and we also have um, Mr... Chan Man Ho, who's Associate Professor at the Education of University and Expert Advisor to the Hong Kong Space Museum. Um, Professor Yu, good morning to you. Hello. Hello, hello, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, perhaps uh, we could just ask you to clarify something first. So, um, of these positions which are being uh, uh, the mainland uh, space agency wants to fill, the two um, payload specialist posts, will they definitely be recruited from Hong Kong or Macau, or is it just that you know people here will be uh, invited to join the application process? Okay, I, uh, this kind of, uh, kind of, I'm not 100% sure it will come from Hong Kong or Macau, but uh, we will join the competition. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're just talking about uh, uh, possibly two positions yeah. uh, uh, from Hong Kong and Macau at the moment. But h- how significant is this uh, development uh, for Hong Kong and for, and for Hong Kong institutions uh, dealing with space research and so on? Okay, that's very important and uh, kind of exciting news because uh, uh, for mainland, majorly previous kind of this mission is open to military kind of missions and all the kind of astronauts come from military uh, kind of training 
persons. But right now, our space uh, space station is kind of try to open to the public and academics. So this this produce opportunity for all the people participate that. Mm. In that case, and the Hong Kong and the Macau, all people can have the opportunity to participate this mission. That is fantastic opportunity, and they will have the chance to boost up this. Uh, 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 aerospace education in Hong Kong also. Mm-hmm. Now, now, the the position of uh, payload specialist, that involves uh, uh, looking after uh, sophisticated uh, equipment and uh, conducting experiments in space. Can, can you tell us a, a, a bit more about uh, what the role involves? Okay, basic idea, you, you, you are correct that. So about the payload specialist, it's not the pilot. If they, uh, they work on the special instrument or some uh, special experiment, science experiment, all those kinds of things, sometimes maybe doing education in the space. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it may help the uh, pilot do some operation for the uh, space uh, kind of station or that, but that's not their main, main mission. Okay, we have your University of Hong Kong colleague uh, Quentin Parker with and us as maybe, well. Good morning. Yes, we should give Quentin Parker his, his, his full title, Director of the University of Hong Kong's Laboratory for Space Research. Mm-hmm. Good morning to you. Good morning. So how excited uh, are you by this development? On a scale of 1 to 10, probably about 11. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you think some of your students are going to... Yeah, I'm sure some of your students are going to... You think oh, some, yes, some of your students are going to... I've got one very keen um, person who's actually going to be interviewed by a uh, mainland uh, TV station uh, in the next couple of days about this very opportunity. He's, um, he's a PhD uh, imminent graduate in, in, in computing, but an engineer who's been working on CubeSats with us here at the uh, University of Hong Kong and the LSR. And his eyes just lit up, you know, he's <laughs> so excited about this opportunity. And I think that's the key is the excitement that this opportunity is going to generate amongst our young people in this city, which I think is one of the most important things. It might attract them into STEM education more generally for the future. Because, you know, you're right, I heard you at the beginning, this is a catalyst. I see this as the the mere apex event in what I think will be a a massive um, trickle-down engagement of this city, finally, with the rapidly emerging space economy, which, as, as you may know, by 2030 will be worth about 1.25 trillion US dollars. So you think globally. you think you have a catalyst in terms of more involvement in the China space program or, or uh, other sort of um, activities internationally? Or both? Very good question. I think both. I think, uh, first of all, this opportunity is a mainland opportunity and it's uh, allowing, you know, the Hong Kong SAR for the first time. You know, it's uh, one country, two, two systems. And, and of course, under one country, in principle, uh, you know, anybody could have applied to enter into the uh, Chinese Taikonaut program in principle, I would imagine. But now it's very explicit. And so, uh, you know, the first speaker um, from Hong Kong UST uh, said, uh, not 100% sure about whether that will lead to an actual candidate from Hong Kong participating. I actually think it will, personally, because why, why else make such a big song and dance about it? If you make such a big song and dance about something like this and say there's two posts available and eventually nothing happens, I think people will remember that and say, well, it's all bluff and bluster. But I think this is important uh, politically, it's important scientifically, it's important as a catalyst, and I think it's important for the city of Hong Kong. Let's go back briefly to the, the first speaker, Professor Yu, uh, because he has to go in just a moment. Professor Yu okay. from uh, HKUST. Um, Professor Yu, you, you said that um, you think that um, Hong Kong researchers have some advantages that will make them uh, particularly competitive in um, competing for these places. Is that correct? 
I think I, 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 did, I did not mean that. I only think that the Hong Kong research or uh, kind of uh, kind of space program or whatever things has kind of competitive kind of uh, capability with that. Yes. But, okay, in the case, let's turn it around. There, there are a lot of smart researchers in uh, many universities all the way across China. I mean, what chance do um, Hong Kong researchers um, stand then? Uh, Hong Kong education kind of system, including uni- university and the research institutes, have lots of areas with kind of advanced, uh, unique advantage compared to other uh, kind of university around the kind of mainland, Macau, all these things. So we we can compete with them in uh, lots of area on that. Okay. Also, I agree to the uh, kind of second guess, and with this kind of uh, kind of uh, initiative, I say Hong Kong and Macau uh, uh, citizens can participate in this program. I think in that case, we have advantage on that. Okay, we're fortunate to have uh, three local institutions uh, represented on our panel this morning, uh, University of Science and Technology, uh, University of Hong Kong, and also the Education University, because uh, we also have with us uh, uh, Dr. Chan Manho, who's an associate professor there. Good morning to you. Hello, good morning. Thanks for joining us. So will any of your students be applying for this program, do you think? I'm not so sure, but I think some of the students are interested in joining this program. Mm Mm-hmm. And what sort of uh, attributes uh, do you think uh, the the space agency is looking for? I mean, uh, we know about uh, uh, academic requirements and and certain age and and physical fitness requirements. But uh, what kind of candidates are they looking for? I think they need to uh, look for some uh, candidates which uh, who has uh, uh, good in health and also they have a, a good physical uh, body and they have a good uh, mental. Uh, ability and because they have to ch- uh, face a lot of challenge in in the space and also they need to tackle a lot of difficulties right during the mission therefore uh, they need to uh, be uh, very mature in handling all these kinds of difficulties and challenges hmm. and um, do you think that uh, there, there will there'll be a problem finding those kind of candidates in Hong Kong I think so yeah some of the uh, Hong Kong students uh, are very smart and they are very good to, I think they, are, uh, good, they have good capability to handle these kinds of uh, difficulties and challenges. Okay, how much excitement? We've seen a, we've seen a lot of um, newspaper stories already about this, a, a reasonable amount of excitement um, already about it. Um, do you think that excitement will continue, or especially if finally a Hong Kong person is, is not chosen, do you think the excitement might fade away? Well, uh, I I don't know, but uh, I think uh, some of the students are quite excited to, at at least they have an opportunity to join this program. I think uh, some of them will apply, but I'm not quite sure whether they will be selected uh, because uh, this is a very keen competition and they have to compete with uh, Macau and also mainland China students, right? Uh, I think there are many candidates uh, to to join this uh, program. Professor Parker, what would you think would be uh, Hong Kong's chances in this process? Well, I'd, I'd like to go back to your early question on that, actually, where you asked what are the advantages. Does, does Hong Kong uh, have any advantages compared mm. to the mainland? Because we're only a city of 8.7 million or so, and you've got 1.2 billion or so in the mainland uh, with all those young people competing for such bases. But there's two spots. I mean, there's an intake of many more than two, but they've mentioned two 
spots for payload specialists for Hong Kong. But about, you know, the suitability, I mean, Hong Kong, small city, but big impact in tertiary education. It has a massive footprint in global education because we're hosting three universities in the top 50 in the world, including my university, which is in the top 20-odd, and, you know, and several others in the top 200. So in terms of the concentration of global the significant universities, we're, we're right up there. We really are significant. We're, and it's sort of like a tertiary education miniature superpower, if you will. But it's not just that. It's that in this global city, the academics that are in our universities are very diverse. So we're getting academics from all around the world working in our universities. Now, I know in the mainland they do have um, academics from overseas in their universities, perhaps not in the concentrations that we have in this city. And so you've got global experts from around the world teaching our students. You can have talent anywhere, but it's how that talent is nurtured and trained and mentored and the environment in which all this learning happens that's important. So I think that's where our city has major advantages. You know, obviously also at my university, English is the, is the language that's spoken, and so the students coming through that system might have a slightly broader outlook than, than some others may have with exposure to um, different opinion and ideas and that brings uh, um, interesting segues to creativity and different ways of thinking that can be extremely beneficial uh, in this kind of thing. So I think our students do have some advantages uh, in, those, in those areas because of, of, of that kind of thing. Of course, we could turn that around. You said that um, the, the students have uh, excellent exposure to English and um, English is the working language. But, I mean, if they're going to work on the mainland uh, uh, space program, they're going to have to learn all these terms in Chinese, aren't they? I mean, are they, are they, just because they speak Chinese, they may not be familiar with using them that way. Yeah, I mean, they're multilingual. They're not unilingual. I think um, a lot of the students are either increasing numbers of students on the mainland are coming to Hong Kong, don't forget. I mean, this year has seen a big increase. Uh, and, the, and many of the, of the, of the Cantonese-speaking um, um, Hong Kong-born people also speak uh, fairly fluent Putonghua. So I think, you know, the fact that they can speak additional language like English on top is an advantage. So, yes, good to turn it around, and that's my response. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, of course, this is being seen uh, as a, a real uh, vote of confidence in uh, Hong Kong universities and research institutes. I believe so, yes. I mean, it's great that we've got, you know, three experts on the panel from our three different universities in the city and, and hearing diverse opinion from amongst us. And, and, yes, I believe this is a real opportunity for Hong Kong, but not just in this apex event which I think is, you know, like, uh, for me, the catalyst. It's what this means more broadly about, you know, Hong Kong's engagement in the global new space economy that's, uh, that's been emerging rapidly over the last few years in particular. I mean, our own city has, uh, you know, a Hong Kong Aerospace Technology Group has been going for about a year, a couple of satellites launched. Uh, you know, we have the Orion Astropreneur Space Academy, of which I'm a member, uh, which is uh, engage, trying to engage young people in STEM education and astropreneurship, which is like the space equivalent of entrepreneurship, <laughs> uh, to try to get, you know, the business side of things going. So I'm hoping that this is going to kickstart a greater government interest and engagement in this whole aerospace ecosystem, and that will promote investment and funding into our universities as well, uh, and, and things like this. So I think it's a very exciting time. I mean, you know, who knows what the future will bring, but I'm very hopeful that this is just the start of something much more significant. Now, tell us more about your excited student. You, you already mentioned you have one who's absolutely gung-ho, can't, can't, can't wait, but presumably yes. you're hoping for substantially more than one applicant from Hong Kong U, right? Oh, yes. I mean, that's just in my immediate uh, close uh, colleague at the Laboratory of Space Research who's working for me as an RA in, in CubeSats. 
Uh, but there are many others. I mean, think of our universities. You know, we were surfing out hundreds of science graduates with PhDs every year. So the cohort that can be selected is 30 to 45. So you've got 15 years of hundreds of students coming out of our university in the past that are going to be eligible for this round. Now, some of them may not be interested. Some of them may be. And also, I want to just point out here that I want wanted people to realize that this is an opportunity for both men and women. I mean, you look at Wang Yaping, uh, that uh, Chinese uh, taikonaut that was the first female uh, Chinese person to do a spacewalk. What a tremendous role model she is. And so I'm hoping, you know, that any young aspiring engineers that are female will also uh, be strongly interested in this opportunity. And I think that's really important that people realize that, you know, we can't put people into boxes of, oh, you're male, so you do hard engineering. Oh, you're female, so you do biology or something like that. That's not the case. Is it only because uh, is it only engineering astronomy? I mean, looking at the uh, academic qualifications, it seems to refer to disciplines like biology, psychology, yes. material sciences. Is, yes. is, is that really yes. correct? All of these could prepare you for um, being an astronaut or a taikonaut. Yes, I think it's because that's the kind of specialties for the payload specialists they have in mind in those particular areas. I think that's the focus. So, uh, but you know, if you're first, you're taikonaut first and foremost, scientist second. You know, and then your specialty comes in after that. You know, if you're a scientist, you're trained to think following the scientific method, and that's broad across many different areas. Don't forget, uh, space activities are very interdisciplinary anyway. And so, um, you know, but then you go into your specialty. And so I think, you know, we'll have to see what those specialties are, but the hints are there. So I think, I think anybody in those particular areas uh, will be uh, well-placed. Uh, Professor Chen, you're also an advisor to the Space Museum. Um, would you think uh, now that there will be a lot more uh, interest in the public to do with uh, uh, space matters? Yes, I think so, because uh, actually there are many Hong Kong people who are interested in astronomy and astrophysics, and they, uh, some of them really have dreams to go to space and have a space travel, something like that. So I think this uh, uh, opportunity can uh, give more Hong Kong people to understand more about uh, space technology, astronomy, and I think this would uh, arise, uh, 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 I think, the proper interest in uh, astronomy and space science. Uh, of course, this is, I mean, in the past, there was a um, competition run that allowed um, young Hong Kong people to go to um, uh, to Cape Canaveral to, to, to see the NASA, how, how, what it's like to be to, to be in NASA. Did, could you imagine something uh, similar being run in China in the future, Professor Chan? Yes, I think so, because I think this is a, just a starting point. Um, uh, I think uh, uh, more programs will be developed, uh, including uh, inviting more young youngsters or uh, uh, teenagers to join the uh, space station and also to, to to learn more about space technology in China and they will be invited to join some of the programs and uh, or can even be trained to be, to be as astronauts uh, in the future. Now, Professor Parker, I mean, this is a great opportunity for whoever's chosen, but it's not a walk in the park, is it, right? I and mean, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about... Um what, what, what sort of training astronauts have to go through? I mean, if they, if they are chosen through a rigorous yeah. selection process, they're presumably going to face a couple of years of uh, very hard training. Yes, I mean, um, 
the days, you know, with the rigorous training of NASA and, and, and the Russian cosmonauts uh, in the past, in the 60s and 70s, I think is, um, is far less arduous these days because of uh, the advances that have been made. I mean, don't forget, you, you've had these um, almost space tourists going up in, in the Dragon capsule uh, SpaceX to the International Space Station with uh, modest amounts of training, and yet they spent many days up in the International Space Station, uh, etc., and paying guests or, or paid for. And so, um, but yes, training will be important. It'll be about two years of in intensive training, which is, is standard uh, now. Uh, it used to be uh, more arduous with, you know, big centrifuges and all those things, but I'm not sure how, how, how serious that, that kind of thing is now, depending on, their act on what they're expected to do. As a, as a mission payload specialist, uh, there may be a slightly different training regime. I don't know. I'm not that familiar with uh, the current Taikonaut training program, but it will be... Uh, certainly uh, comprehensive. It'll, it'll, a lot of it will be technical. A lot of it will be actually physical and manual too, about spacesuits, you know, and, and uh, you, you've quite, probably seen the way that astronauts are, are trained in the past in spacesuits underwater as, as kind of a semi-mimic for what it would be like to be in space. So I think some of that will be happening. Um, uh, so, uh, yes, I mean, uh, the, the, the applicants mustn't underestimate the, the nature of, of the training and hopefully they'll get a heads up of what's expected of them. But they need to be physically fit and healthy, uh, you know, they need to be super clever because they already have to have a, have a PhD, which uh, demands a certain amount of intellectual capacity to, to get to that stage. They have to be really committed, you know, uh, they'll want to do this. Uh, and I think uh, that that, uh, that will be evident from, from the applicants. You've got to put yourself forward for a, a quite rigorous selection process. Do you think the PhD um, is really essential? I think um, Professor Yu, who's gone now, was, was earlier saying that he okay. hope, hoped to be relaxed, it would open up even wider candidate field of candidates. Professor Parker? Sorry, say again. You yeah, do you, think the PhD, do you think the PhD requirement is absolutely essential? Um, well, it's a mission specialist. If it wasn't a mission specialist, I would say not. So a mission specialist, it means that you've got to really on your game in terms of what the mission is. You know, your, your specific instrument or your specific set of experiments that you will be doing in the International Space Station. And don't forget, you know, you've got the, um, the two uh, science modules uh, going, have gone up. Uh, one's go, about to go up, I think, and the other one's already there. And uh, these will contain experiments from around the world, uh, 17 selected from different countries already. And so these um, will need to be looked after properly. Some of the equipment is quite complex and it needs to be operated uh, very knowledgeably. And so and this is where the specialties come in. And so that kind of specialty will require deep knowledge and understanding. And I think that comes from somebody that's trained their mind through a PhD. Uh, Dr. Chan, would you agree with that? Do you think it's uh, appropriate to uh, make that a requirement, a doctoral degree? Yeah, right. Uh, I think uh, it depends on the mission, right? Because uh, this time uh, they would like to uh, hire for the payload specialist. I think payload specialist, they would need the candidate to do some experiments or uh, scientific investigation in, in, in the space, right? And they need to have a certain uh, 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 knowledge about science, right? So I think PhD may be essential. But if they would like to uh, hire uh, astronauts, so it's just uh, I think that they need to uh, need not uh, have any uh, PhD degrees. So I think uh, it depends on uh, the nature of the uh, mission and also uh, the objective of the mission. 
and because I, I'm worried about the selection process here. You you choose the uh, you choose the payload specialist first, and then you presumably choose the scientific experiments to be conducted later. What what, what happens if the scientific experiments don't fit the speciality of the of the person you've chosen, or do, 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 do you take that into account when you're choosing the person in the first place, uh, Professor Parker? Um, okay, yes, well, I think, um, you know, they're given hints already about the areas that these mission uh, payload specialists uh, will uh, be expected to, to work with. So I think um, that'll be clear. But, you know, as the previous speaker said, uh, it does depend on the exact uh, um, specialty that's required. And, and there may be somebody that needs a, somebody that's actually a more broader scientist with expertise in a, a number of different areas. Uh, because they might have other duties when they're on board as a scientist. So um, I think that it's more than just those uh, very narrow areas. I think they'll look for people who have multiple experiences in different areas. Now, if you're doing a PhD, um, then you pick up all sorts of skills. You can pick up computing skills. You can pick up critical thinking skills, experimental skills, analytical skills, technology skills, different kinds of things. I mean, you know, the modern scientist is not constrained into a tiny box. You know, they have a, a broad range of capacities and skill sets that they normally acquire during, during modern PhDs, I believe. And so the idea of how to construct an experiment, uh, what is the scientific method and how you apply it in practice are all skills that most STEM graduated PhD students will have in one form or another. So I think that does broaden out the base of, um, of candid candidates to beyond what has been hinted at. But nevertheless, I think, you know, I mean, until we know what the exact um, uh, mission specialist roles are, we don't know that yet. There's just been hints. Then, you know, it's hard to say. You're, you were saying earlier that actually if you're up in space, you have to be a bit of a jack-of-all-trades. Um, I mean, scientifically, I, I, think, I think to some degree uh, I, would, I, would, I would think so. Um, you know, there, there is a, a whole range of experiments going up there, and you might be expected to actually look after more than one. I mean, if you're the only mission specialist on board and there's, there's 17 experiments, and they're all in different fields of, you know, researching microgravity, uh, you know, uh, medicines in space, 3D printing, um, you know, astrophysics, whatever it is that all these different experiments are doing, um, if you've only got one mission specialist on board and you've got 17 different kinds of experiments, who's going to look after them? So you need somebody, I would think, that's going to have a, sort of a, 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 a skill set that enables them to actually control, manage, calibrate, measure, and, you know, and apply uh, to whatever experiments are currently on board. OK, um, stay with us and we're going to break for the news, but we'll continue this discussion after the news. And later on, we're also going to be talking about a, a food recycling project for um, some food deliveries. And we've all seen how much waste builds up that way. If you've got any thoughts on either topic, uh, do email us at backchat at rthk.hk. That's backchat at rthk.hk or leave a message on our Facebook page, backchat on rthk radio free. The weather forecast, sunny periods and a few showers. Maximum temperature will be around 30 degrees. The outlook of few showers and temperatures will fall slightly in the next couple of days. We'll be back in three minutes. With me this morning is Jim Gould. In the second half of the show, we continue our discussion on uh, China's announcement that it's going to widen the selection process for its fourth bat batch of astronauts to include applicants from Hong Kong and Macau for two scientific posts known as payload experts. Uh, still with us, we have uh, Professor Quentin Parker, who's the vice chair of the Orion Astropreneur Space Academy and director of the University of Hong Kong's Laboratory for Space Research. And we also still have with us Dr. Chan Man Ho, who's the associate professor at the Education University of Hong Kong, an expert advisor on the, uh, to the Hong Kong Space Museum. 
And just before we get uh, back into our main topic this morning, uh, an email uh, left over from Monday. It came in a little bit too late for us to read out. On Monday, uh, we were talking about the uh, forthcoming uh, International Finance Conference in Hong Kong uh, on November the 2nd and the prospects of opening up. Um, So uh, this from uh, Mark Pinkston, Pinky, who's a former government chief information officer, says uh, Hong Kong will come back on a pogo stick. It will bounce uh, right back to what it became. We have uh, lost uh, people and so have other places, but very few places on this planet can offer what Hong Kong has. And uh, once again, Backchat listeners show that they know perhaps more than sometimes the presenters. Uh, at the start of this show, I, I introduced this topic, saying that this is going to be Hong Kong's uh, first opportunity to have an astronaut. Uh, but a couple of uh, listeners correcting me, a, a, a caller very soon after the start of the program, pointing out that one of the astronauts on the Apollo 16 uh, mission was called, called William Anders was actually born in Hong Kong. And uh, Bob, now supplementing this, says, we, you mentioned a chance to be Hong Kong's first astronaut. We have one already. Bill Anders, command module pilot of uh, Apollo 8. So there's uh, some dispute about which Apollo mission uh, he was on, but he was definitely on one of them. Uh, Apollo 8, which flew around the moon in 1968, was born at the Matilda Hospital in Hong Kong and went to peak school. So there you are. It sounds like he does qualify as Hong Kong's first astronaut. Um, uh, Professor Parker, did did, did you know about that? Um, uh, that person probably was an American citizen. I think he probably had to be to, to participate at that stage of the program. So he may have been born and bred Hong Kong. I don't know if he had American parents. I don't know if he was um, if, they, if, if they were just based here temporarily and he went to school for a few years. We have a big itinerant population in Hong Kong, always have had people come and go. It doesn't mean they're Hong Kong people per se. Uh, so, yes, I mean, I take the point. It's a valid one, but I don't think that's quite what is meant here. I suppose not. But, I mean, it, it, it also it sounds like you're not particularly surprised. As you said, a lot of people come and go in Hong Kong. You're not particularly surprised that there, there should have been an astronaut here at one point or another? I mean, you know, people like to, to claim, uh, you know, anything that, you know, like, oh, um, Russell Crowe is Australian when he was born in New Zealand, you know, and there's, <laughs> there's things like this happen all the time when something good happens, you want to claim something. So uh, I have no objection. You know, a person uh, is from Hong Kong was born here, which is fantastic. So technically, yes. Nationality-wise, not so sure. But um, um, anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's a minor uh, point from the past. We're talking about, you know, the 21st century and what's, got, what's happening. Uh, you know, this is a, a, a not pedantic per se, it's a fact. But this, when we're talking now about what's happening now for the opportunities for the young people of Hong Kong. You know, and this is under the, the, the Chinese uh, space program, uh, not under, under NASA uh, from, you know, from the Apollo missions in, in, in the 60s and early 70s. Now, earlier on, you were talking about what you hope will be the trickle-down effect. Well, there's one, there's mm. one level, of course, you're very excited, your research as a student, other students applying, but you're hoping for a much broader trickle-down effect, aren't you? And, you know, can you explain Absolutely. a bit more about what you mean there? Yes, I, I think, you know, um, I think in Carrie Lam's last uh, address as chief executive, she did mention space, I think, for the very first time. And, of course, uh, we don't have anyone from PolyU on the show, unfortunately, but they've had uh, some very important contribution to the Chinese space program in the last uh, uh, two or three yeah. years with uh, specialist cameras they've developed for the Changi moon rovers, uh, etc. And so um, we do have some um, track record in universities. My own university, you know, we launched a lobster eye x-ray telescope in July 2020 as a pure science mission with our Nanjing University uh, colleagues. And as I said, we have a company, Hong Kong Aerospace Technology Group, that's uh, only been going uh, uh, less than two years, and, and or about two years, and that's um, launched a couple of sat- satellites 
So I think, you know, there is some mood music behind the scenes about things that have been going on, but the government hasn't really taken much of an interest. But now, with this announcement from the mainland and the government sitting up taking notice and, and, and giving such attention to it that the chief executive actually had a special press conference about it, that speaks to me of the importance of this event. And that's why, as you said in, earlier in the show, there's been a lot of news about this already. So I think this is like a, a, a real um, um, opportunity, a real sea change, a real uh, change step up in, in terms of, of expectation now. And I hope that the government, you know, puts its money where its mouth is and starts to really look at the way it can invest, not just in, in this uh, APEX program, you know, one or two Hong Kong people may be lucky enough to get accepted into the training program, etc. But what it means more broadly for aerospace technology, you know, in this part of the world. Think about Hong Kong, you know, we are a, um, a very strong fintech and finance and investment hub. And these investments in aerospace, they, seek, they need huge amounts of funding. You know, every satellite you send up, it's not an ALICE satellite, it's, you know, hundreds of millions of US dollars potentially. You know, but Hong Kong has expertise in fintech and other areas to help facilitate these kinds of investments, not just for uh, players around the world, but here in our own city. Well, it's interesting. That's of yeah. interest to me. You're moving away from the scientific expertise here, aren't you? You're talking about sort of um, almost the Hong Kong's financial expertise coming into play on this as well. well absolutely. I mean, you've got to look at this in multi dimensions. Yes, the scientific side and, you know, investment can be investment into technology here in Hong Kong, building microsatellites here in this city, developing smart tech in this city associated with remote sensing satellites, etc. So, you know, but, you know, the two go together. The investment facilitates the research and the development and the you know and the infrastructure which leads to all these other things and of course uh, yeah. So, what, what, yeah let's uh, let's bring in a uh, professor chan on that issue as well would, would you now expect to see uh, a greater investment in the aerospace industry yes i think so because i think uh, there are some business opportunities also because uh, you know right uh, communication is very important in uh, nowadays right and uh, i think satellite is related to space technology and also related to communications. Therefore, uh, large amounts of investment might be uh, involved in these kinds of business. And actually, there are some private companies are uh, thinking to, inve uh, to uh, invest on uh, some space technology about satellite communications. And I think uh, this is a good opportunity for initiate these kinds of uh, uh, investments right, in, in Hong Kong or in, in the world. Uh, Dr. Chan, uh, if you look at in, in the West now, um, space exploration is increasingly been um, more and more of it's been done by the private sector companies, isn't it? Uh, uh, space tourism, but even um, private companies, uh, NASA is employing them. In China, it's still an entirely a, a government-run program, isn't it? Do, do, do you think that will ever change? Do you think? Uh, I think uh, in in the in the long run, maybe, but in the uh, short period of time, I think uh, this would still be run by government, right, in mainland China because uh, there are some uh, uh, challenges and difficulties in technologies. I think uh, not so many private companies can uh, tackle all these kinds of uh, uh, difficulties, uh, technical difficulties. Therefore, I think uh, in the uh, uh, coming short period of time in the future, uh, I think uh, there will not be any private company uh, would uh, fully engage in these kinds of uh, space missions or uh, space technology. But in the long run, maybe uh, some uh, private companies will be invited by the government to join uh, some of the uh, uh, space program or the space mission. 
Um, and uh, Professor Parker, you were talking exactly about the sort of uh, technological, uh, you hope that it leads to technological advances and so on, but isn't there a problem in sharing technology? A lot of, uh, of techno space-related technology is considered quasi-military and so on, and uh, to, uh, there's more suspicion about uh, transferring that kind of technology to Hong Kong these days? Um, yes, but quickly, just back on that last question, I have to slightly disagree with that speaker. I mean, there is a burgeoning uh, commercial space sector in China. Even in China? And in yeah. fact, um, well, companies have been spun out from the uh, national enterprises into private enterprises, uh, which is why our university was able to, for example, get 80-odd million dollars from the Research Matching Grant Scheme because of our partnerships with private companies in the mainland on space endeavors like DFH and ACES. And so these companies do exist, and they, are, and they are growing, but they have been supported, it is true, and spun out of major national space uh, institutes. So uh, there's this kind of a, a, a close partnership there. But, you know, even there, you know, you've got lots of mini startups trying to uh, look at small satellite launches through uh, small rockets, etc. So anyway, things are changing very, very quickly. Sorry, just to follow up, um, that's very interesting. So and how does it work then? Do, does the Ch Chinese uh, National uh, Space Agency contract with um, these, these companies like NASA now contracts with other companies in the U.S.? Yes, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, we, we, we've, uh, I mean we, we work with BISME, which is a Beijing Institute for Science and Mechanical Electricity, which is a, a massive national endeavor. But then we've also been working with DFH and ASIS, which are, which are, 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 are private companies that are building satellites in, in the mainland for, for, commercial, for commercial purposes. So this is there, and it is true, uh, the, the, speaker, the previous speaker was correct, that, you know, a lot of the, 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 the numbers of individuals working in these companies uh, in, under China government are very large, and the numbers working in these other more private companies are, are, are quite small and modest by comparison. And most of the technological development is done in the big labs. You know, but innovation can come from a single mind in a single, single one-person office. It just depends. <laughs> you okay, know, um, um, but let's... Yeah. So how about the issue of technology transfer, which is... is, is yes, is uh, getting issue. back to that, of course, um, there has been a significant problem uh, in the past with, uh, after the Wolf Amendment in America has prevented China participating in the International Space Station and also the latest moves on, you know, chip design and, and you know, trying to uh, freeze China out from, from semiconductor advances. Uh, you know, this, I think, will be... Um, uh, they'll be shooting themselves in the foot because what they did with the Chinese with the space station is the Chinese just went on and developed its own spanking new fantastic space station. So if you, know, if you exclude China and don't but, but collaborate with it, you're only end up going to be competing with them even more strongly in an area where they may actually get a lead. So it's actually sensible uh, to collaborate. But, you know, these technology issues... You know, in the past, people have feared, oh, China and... First of all, Japan. Japan stole all our stuff from the West. Now it's China stealing all our stuff from the West. But actually, you look at the outputs in the last few years, China has more patents uh, than any other nations for several years now, and it's overtaken just, I think, this year, America in terms of science research outputs in the, in the referee journals. You know, so so China, China's been investing massively in its own infrastructure and technologies and doesn't really need uh, uh, anyone else uh, but it is still open to collaboration because collaborations are sensible and you produce things more quickly, uh, uh, you know, and you have a different opinion, so it could be valuable. And so I'm all for collaboration and international cooperation and all this, um, you know, um, excluding nations from different things because you're fearing they're going to steal your technology, uh, I think is, um, is counterproductive in many cases. Not always, but often. 
Okay, we'll have to draw it to a close there, but uh, thank you very much. Uh, you just heard uh, Professor Quentin Part Parker. Professor Parker is the director of the University of Hong Kong's Laboratory for Space Research. And also uh, staying with us in the second half of the program for this discussion was Dr. Chan Man Ho, Dr. Chan Man Ho, Associate Professor at the Education the University of Hong Kong. Thank you very much to our guests. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Moving on, our second topic today, we're going to be talking about uh, recycling for food delivery. And we've all seen, I, mean, pretty, I guess all of us have used these food delivery companies, have seen the amount of waste that is, is coming with them. Now one of the uh, uh, major companies, uh, Food Panda, is uh, partnering with uh, uh, WWF, uh, Worldwide Fund for Nature Hong Kong, to uh, try and introduce a pilot um, reusable um, um, container program. It's only going to be for uh, 40 restaurants initially. Um, it's a trial at this stage. Uh, they've done food pandas been doing something similar in um, Singapore and uh, Taiwan for um, since 2020 uh, they hope that uh, these re 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 reusable boxes can be used up to a hundred thousand times before they can um, um, before they can no longer be used uh, joining us uh, to to discuss uh, this um, experiment but really by uh, food panda we have uh, first of all uh, Ronnie sham from uh, oceans pollution at WWF Hong Kong uh, good morning um, Ms. sham Good morning. Good morning. Uh, tell us about this uh, partnership with Food Panda. <coughs> um, so we are seeing the pandemic. So under the pandemic, there are more takeaway orders, and then we want to stop the um, these single-use containers holding the food to be disposed of after use, so, and end up in the landfills or even in the natural environment. So we are partnering with Food Panda to see if, whether we can close the loop by replacing single-use uh, containers with reusable, and then they can, when people order food, they can um, choose the reusable containers and then return it after use through our reverse vending machines at Central, at Multi, Wan Chai, and Causeway Bay. And what, what's been the experience uh, of your experiment in Singapore and Taiwan? Hi, perhaps yeah. it's better for, for me. Okay, to yes, thank you. Let me just Hello. introduce Woody Chan, who's now join, mm. joining us. Woody Chan, yeah. uh, Senior CSR and Sustainable Sustainability Manager at Food Panda. Please go ahead. Yep, so uh, results from Singapore and, and Taiwan have been good, um, and in Taiwan especially, the, the program has been scaled up to not just cover ta Tainan, but also Taipei, uh, which is super positive. Um, however, we we do see that over there they have been partnering with startups, which is an external app which requires um, customers to be registering from a separate app before ordering reusables on Food Panda, which can be quite a cumbersome experience, especially given that they they have to register their credit card details once more. So in in Hong Kong, our model uh, hopes to improve on this um, and and offer a more seamless experience so that they can uh, they don't have to do this through through an external app and can just order through Food Panda directly. Uh, how many restaurants you got on Food Panda now? It must be hundreds, right? And what, 40 of them are taking part in this experiment? So it, it is, I mean, it's a good start, but it is very small scale at this stage. Yes, uh, on the Food Panda platform, we have uh, thousands. Yeah, well, there you are. You see, so you've got thousands, thousands and 40 are taking part in this um, in, the, in, the, in this, yes, in this at, trial. At the moment, it is still a pilot. However, uh, we, we also have to be mindful of the operation Difficult operational difficulties that, that restaurants can face when offering reusable containers. At the moment, a lot of them are still using uh, single-use plastic containers, 
um, which are much more stackable, takes less space, and something that operationally they're much more used to. Um, and and the F and B industry uh, requires a more of a uh, more of a push, I think, to to join this kind of uh, innovative program. It, it will take time to convert them, but but we are positive to 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 bring more of these restaurants on board and scale this up. So what are the reusable containers made of? Uh, the containers themselves are made of polypropylene, uh, PP. Um, they, we, we've done um, uh, a lot of testing on this and, and we, we, came, uh, we came to this conclusion uh, mainly because of the balance between um, durability, stackability, cost and also microwave, uh, microwaveability, yes. Now you say they could be reused a hundred thousand times. A hundred thousand times, the mind slightly boggles. Yeah, so just to clarify uh, on that particular number, uh, we aim to send out a hundred thousand reusable containers over the course of this pilot. Um, but we don't just have one container continuously being reused a hundred thousand times. We will have, um, uh, in the first phase at least, eight thousand containers in circulation. But in terms of the actual number of times it's being, uh, each container is reused, it can be reused up to fifty times. So, Rony Asham, how important do you think this project is in reducing the use of uh, plastic single-use containers? Um, as we can see that there are more takeaways during the pandemic, and then mm. because these um, containers, usually people just throw them away and they end up in landfills or even the natural environment. So, um, take for example, um, in the ocean we can always see a lot of um, plastic um, trash and these trash usually comes from um, land source. So if we can close the loop by uh, using reusable and stop disposing single-use plastics, and we can actually have a great benefit. Um, and it's a good example for us to transit to a circular economy. And you, when, these days, of course, people order all kinds of things for delivery uh, online, um, and that comes with more, more packaging, whatever it is. When, when you worry about um, extra waste from uh, online deliveries, is, is, is food delivery the most serious problem, or is it other sort of deliveries of goods that are even more serious? Um, at this stage we Sorry, let's go to Ronnie uh, Sham first on this, and then we'll come back to Woody Chan. Yeah. Ronnie? Yeah, um um, so at this stage, we don't really have some actual numbers regarding which um, plastic waste is the most serious. But we can also see that um, under the pandemic, there are a lot of um, online delivery services, um, like online shopping that are causing, um, producing more plastic waste. Um, but uh, definitely um, more takeaway orders can cause the problem. So it's really the plastic waste that you're... I mean, uh, the, the online deliveries produce masses of uh, cardboard boxes and paper waste as well, which presumably you don't like either, but it's the plastic waste that worries you most of all, Rania Sham. Um, yes, definitely, because plastics has, um, cannot be um, decomposed, so they can stay in the natural environment for a very long time. And we can also see that a lot of um, um, orders um, for online shopping, even they have the card box outside like the outer layer they still have a lot of plastics inside to protect the product so it is definitely uh, most concerning well, woody chan i think he wanted to join in on this point yeah uh, I, I totally agree with Roni 
as in saying, uh, you know, uh, just just through Panda itself, we, we don't just uh, deliver food, but uh, increasingly we're also uh, offering online groceries through our platform. So, and and there it also comes with you know uh, paper-based packaging. I'm sure you've seen the food Panda bags in in, in, in society. Um, and this is also something that that we are we are actively working on as well, and off, trying to offer a more circular um, solution to that problem. Uh, have you been uh, uh, busier business-wise in the last three years since the start of the pandemic? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mm. assume that question is directed towards me. Yes. Yeah. Uh, with, with the pandemic, uh, people have have um, the behaviour of consumers have changed. They are they are more inclined to order uh, food delivery and groceries. So yes, business has has uh, become busier over the past three years. Do, do you see any sign that the public is becoming uh, more educated at the same time and more environmentally aware? Uh, you know, in it, terms of how they dispose of things, yeah. uh, it, is, it is difficult to to put a put a, mm. a number on that. But I think qualitative, uh, quanti- uh, qualitatively, uh, we do see that throughout the pandemic, people are starting to realise how just how much plastic waste they are. They are contributing to as well. Um, we, I've had uh, many, many friends, uh, acquaintances come to me and say, uh, when they were under lockdown, when they were under hotel quarantine, they're just witnessing uh, how much plastic waste is is uh, accumulated in the houses when they are not, when they ha- don't have the chance to, to clear it out, uh, when they're ordering food delivery every single day. So I think uh, indeed the awareness uh, is increasing, definitely. One thing I've noticed with food delivery companies is that um, you do get a minority of restaurants who are already delivering using um, sort of some sort of cardboard boxes in, instead of plastic. But it's a very small number, of, or at least of, of those that I've experienced, of the overall um, number of restaurants. Is, is, that, is that the way forward, um, Woody Chan, that you get, get all restaurants to, to use um, some sort of car- cardboard boxes instead of plastic boxes? As Ronia mentioned, uh, cardboard uh, in itself is definitely better than plastic as a, as a material for food delivery. But unfortunately, uh, in terms of the material science, a lot of the cardboard actually used for food delivery is actually coated with a, a lining that cannot be recycled. So, and, and that lining is also essential for the F&B uh, out, uh, operators to ensure that uh, you know the grease doesn't. Um, soak through the cardboard, if you see what I mean. So, uh, you know, operationally, we understand why they have to do that, but in terms of sustainability and recyclability, that is um, not, that's not very good. So when we think, oh, great, this restaurant is more environmentally conscious because they, this big restaurant, because they're, they're using cardboard boxes uh, lam- with this sort of lamination on it, which is, um, whereas all the others use um, um, uh, plastic containers, then that's actually a misconception, right? There's, there's, there's no real practical difference there. Yeah, uh, in terms of recyclability, that you know, it, it, it's not simply just cardboard versus plastic. You're right. You know, there, there needs to be more uh, awareness surrounding that that issue. And what's going to happen in a few years when you have legislation? And legislation may well stop uh, one-off plastic plastics like this that are not recyclable. Uh, well, it remains to be seen. You know exactly what the legislation will will cover. Um, we 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 know that you know it will likely cover the likes of uh, polystyrene, uh, polypropylene uh, containers. But you know we we also have some materials such as PLA, which is a little bit more murky in terms of the sustainability impact. So it remains to be seen 
what the government will do regarding uh, those materials. But in terms of cardboard itself, we, we believe uh, we, we don't we don't see the government uh, uh, regulating that uh, as yet. And even if it's non-recyclable cardboard, uh, we, so so the lining uh, we we see is, is often made out of uh, PLA. So we we don't know whether that will also be regulated. So that's something we cannot be certain yet. Okay, so moving forward, the future is presumably that restaurants will be using these kinds of um, uh, cardboard boxes. Yeah, again, you know, we we do not know what the regulation will cover yet, so it is difficult to pinpoint exactly what restaurants will use, but we have heard from restaurants that we we do need uh, better alternatives uh, compared to, say, cardboard. You know, without the lining, it cannot... You know, contain soup or, or hot liquids. So, what can the FMB industry, you know, uh, switch to? So, that's something that we, as the platform and also restaurants, would like more clarity from the government uh, mm. on going forward. Mm. Um, Ronnie Asham, uh, just remind us then. So, if you're a member of the public and you receive a food delivery um, in one of these uh, reusable plastic containers, uh, w- what do you do with it afterwards? And um, so, uh, after the scheme, um, we were. Uh, we are going to review the numbers and also all the figures with Fopenda and to see if it is um, feasible for Fopenda to carry it, the project, like extend it mm-hmm. and to more restaurants, to more areas in Hong Kong, etc. I think if you're a customer um, and you've, you've finished with the container, then what? Then you, you, then you wash it. And I think, did you mention about reverse lent- vending machine? Uh, yeah, so um, we have now uh, now we have seven reverse vending machines mm. already mm. sent by in different locations within um, Central, Admiralty, Wan Chai and Causeway Bay. We will have two more coming um, in Central and also one in Causeway Bay. So when the people finish their meal, they can rinse it and then they can go to the machines and return it and get the deposit back. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, Thank you very much to uh, Ronnie Asham. Ronnie Asham is manager Oceans Pollution at WWF Hong Kong and to Woody Chan, who's a senior CSR and sustainability manager at uh, Food Panda. Thank you also, Jim. Uh, Interesting discussion. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Danny. Uh, uh, The weather forecast, uh, sunny periods and a few showers. The maximum temperature will be around 32 degrees. And the outlook looking forward, a few showers and temperatures are finally going to start to fall. I'm Dr. Emma Nam. The pandemic is surging with more contagious mutant strains. The elderly are at the highest risk if a new wave comes. Scientific data shows that those with stable health can receive COVID-19 vaccines. Take your elderly relatives to get the jab at community vaccination centers, designated general outpatient clinics, elderly health centers, private clinics, or hospital COVID-19 vaccination stations, or opt for the home vaccination service. The News with Andrew. Thank you, Danny. The director of the University of Hong Kong's Laboratory for Space Research says the SAR has some very smart students who might be good candidates for astronauts. Applications open tomorrow for Hong Kongers to apply to China's space program. Sun Kwok said he hoped his laboratory could put forward candidates for the program, but warned they need to meet tough 
physical and psychological requirements. President Volodymyr Zelensky says Ukrainian troops are making rapid and major advances against Russian forces. He said that in the past week, dozens of settlements had been recaptured in the south and east. Washington has announced another 600 million U.S. dollars in military aid for Ukraine. And reports from the Iranian city of Zahedan say the death toll from days of clashes between the police and protesters 